All right. Bonjour tout le monde et bienvenue. Welcome online and in person to Concordia Universities for Space. Thank you so much for joining us for this live podcast conversation between perceptional imprints host Abhishek Koyalkar and his guest Simone Briapaya about mathematics and statistics and understanding their usage in everyday life. Before getting started, I just wanted to let everyone know that we are streaming to YouTube live from Forspace, which is located on unceded indigenous lands in Jojage, Montreal. And we'd like to extend our gratitude to the Kanyankahaga Nation, who are the caretakers for the lands and waters on which we're gathering and meeting here today for their teachings about the earth and our relations. Uh, fourth space is Concordia's knowledge, mobilization, public space. We work with faculty, students, and staff to activate ongoing research projects and conversations initiatives that are blooming at the university with really the goal of co-creating knowledge and building community while doing so. And we do this through these daily uh, hybrid activities, live events that are free and open to the public. So welcome in once again, and I'll pass the floor now to our special guests. Thank you, Anna. Thanks uh, again for the introduction and for uh, the fourth space for having us here and providing this opportunity for us to be able to have the space be utilized and conduct our interview. So uh, again, welcome to Perceptional Imprints, and I'm here uh, with Simon. Simon, welcome. And Simon is a is an assistant professor at Concordia, and I'll let him speak more about what he do and uh, what he does actually, and then. Uh, what sort of, uh, you know, uh, research he is into. So if you could, uh, Simon, tell us. Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about my uh, myself. So, uh, yeah, I'm an assistant professor uh, in this very building at the Mathematics <laughs> and Statistics Department, Concordia. Uh, I joined Concordia in 2019. Um, and, uh, yeah, so my, you know, as a professor, I do research, teaching, service. These are our main duties. And I guess today we're going to focus more on the research uh, in terms of research, my broad, broadly defined my research area is uh, applied mathematics. Uh, applied mathematics, it's, it's a very large area, so a bit more kind of trying to narrow down what I do is, I mean, I'm at intersection between computational mathematics and mathematics of data science. That's where I like to place myself. So what I do has to do with algorithms, computers, and understanding using mathematics uh, when algorithms work, when they don't work, when they break, and when they uh, are doing what they're expected to do, how fast they do that, okay. how, you know, things like uh, how stable are they to maybe noise in the data, all these kind of questions. So, so yeah, that's in a, in a, kind of in a nutshell <laughs> my area. Basically, yeah, basically my question is, and I think a lot of people have this question uh, when they hear about math. So I, as a kid, uh, was a, you know, pretty high functioning kid with, you know, doing so many things, but, you know, I was still good at studies. Like, if I have to say high functioning, is like I was good at sports, I was good at everything, I was good at studies too. Hmm. Uh, but my mo main focus, like, uh, was mathematics because after a certain age, I start uh, developing the sphere of maths. Right. So yeah, that's <laughs> so a very common. I, yeah. I realized that later that it's nothing but I was arithmophobic uh, as a kid, and I used to not read other subjects. But my main priority was to get at least passing grades in maths. 
but still i i managed to get good because good grades in other subjects but i still you know was struggling to pass with math so my question and probably a lot of people who are listening or watching this would have the same question that you know maths sounds super difficult <laughs> sounds you know and it's it's super difficult to cope up with uh but you yeah. work with maths and everything and how do you use that maths in your daily life right so yeah so let me see so there's def- different aspects here to uh to address so the fear of math is a real thing mm-hmm. i think it's um it can be determined by 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 many factors of course you know i was lucky to have like teachers that that kind of transferred a lot of passion mm-hmm. towards math since the very beginning of my of my journey as a student um but at the end of the day i think i was willing as a, as a you know when i was just a kid to spend a lot of time uh, just playing around with math you know trying mm. to solve problems thinking about problems so at the beginning i think you know the way i see math is that it's it's just a language mm-hmm. so it it could take i mean it takes several years to learn this language well and it takes a lot of effort a lot of discipline uh so at the beginning especially this kind of a very a bit of a costly <laughs> entry price yeah, yeah yeah initial investment you have to do just okay. to to master the language is mm-hmm. pretty consistent and usually you you're asked to do this inverse this investment where you're very young you have maybe more interesting yeah. exciting things to yeah. do right than playing soccer whatever yeah. um so yeah at the at the beginning i just found myself enjoying spending time with this language uh, that's does, it was the beginning for me does that also mean like the way you are taught i mean your teacher also plays a important yeah, role teacher, your like your academics also play a huge role uh, like for us we had a lot of pressure i mean uh, to be honest we had a lot of pressure a lot of competition because india is a country where you know there's so much into oh if you don't get good grades you're not you know you're not a good thing in the you know you won't get a good uh, uh admission into a good school or yeah. a good university and so it was super competitive because there's a lot of people already so i think the the idea is also how you're treat uh, how you're taught how your uh you know how your academics were also being yeah you know that that's definitely a, cr- a crucial point you know the thing is i mean i guess, i guess in the common uh perception of math we have this like oh it's a collection of very boring complicated formula that yes. i have to somehow memorize without understanding <laughs> or stuff like that right so uh but i think at least for me what 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 was working when, you know when a teacher when was a teaching uh, a teacher able to kind of make me passionate about the topic when uh, and and just when, if i ask myself when was i most passionate about the topic was when i saw that things were making sense so mm-hmm. like it's really and in a part was like it's it's a pretty unique feature of math like memory plays kind of yeah. a, a minor role uh, as opposed to other topics maybe I don't know, like history of course you have to make sense of of many things in his, when you study history too but at the beginning you remember struggling with like you know rem- uh, memorizing dates or like certain events that theorems yeah <laughs> <laughs> there were like so many theorems yeah for, but for math yeah you could if if you want to memorize and just memorize things it will be a, a huge struggle instance instead i think what makes it beautiful is that you know um everything really makes sense like you can unfold very complicated concepts into kind of elementary step by step proofs or 
um, solutions to problems that they kind of, you know, they're beautiful because there's many beautiful ideas inside these proofs or inside these solutions. And so, yeah, teachers, I think teachers that can make people passionate about math are teachers that maybe are able to let this aspect, even the playful aspect of math emerge. There's a lot of, actually, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of play into math, nice. you know, okay. problem solving is like really, especially at the beginning in school, was really about having fun, trying to crack, you know, mm -hmm. doing a puzzle, yeah, stuff like yeah, that, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say the playful element is, uh, is pretty crucial. Okay, okay, all right, thanks for answering. And uh, how, like, what do you do right now? What's your research about? And what are you yeah. focusing on? Like, how does yeah. it help? Yeah, if I have to ask, how does it help? Or if in case, uh, does it help uh, for me as a, regular user does right. it come yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah that's yeah that's a tricky question sometimes for us because um it's not easy to see the impact like in uh -huh. certain in certain research area is i mean i think the impact to the general public is pretty direct okay uh anyway if you're an engineer that is <clears throat> just doing better airplanes they're able to fly faster or for longer you know you, we could see very clearly where, where the impact of that maybe we can travel mm -hmm. more easily or like mm -hmm. Uh, we can travel maybe using less uh, less fuel, stuff like that, so mm -hmm. efficiency of an airplane. So certain research topics that are more applied are, are easier to to just, I would say, to justify. It's easier to see where they go in terms of regular user, regular. right? Yeah. For math, it could be a bit more complicated. Uh, for applied math, I think it's, it's reasonably uh, easy to explain. I'll try to, to do my best. Sometimes for pure math, it could be uh, a bit difficult because... I'm not a pure mathematician, but like in pure math, you study problems that are typically very hard, but they, they don't necessarily have a link okay. with some application. In applied math, but I still, you know, so in, in that case, some people justify that, you know, math could be seen as just a form of art. You know, we're developing this huge body of knowledge that, you know, eventually might be applied somewhere, but we don't still know how mm -hmm. and when. And there are examples of, of uh, you know, this happened in, in, in history. For example, um, Fourier. Now, let's think about a magic, and I'll, I'll talk about that, uh, about medical imaging, because it's been something that, kind of a motivating application for a lot of my research. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when you go in an MRI uh, scan, and you, you, you know, you get a body scan, or part of your body, maybe the brain, whatever, um, you know, it might not seem like there's a lot of math behind that, but uh, if you actually know how an MRI works, there's centuries of math behind that kind of very advanced technology. So, for example, one of the fundamental pieces of math that you need to, to just make an MRI machine work, so going from the physical measurements to a printed image of, of an inner mm -hmm. part of your body, a fundamental piece of math that you need is harmonic analysis. That, that's a study, for example, the so-called Fourier transform. Maybe that's something that people have heard doing their studies but the basic idea is that you need to decompose signals into kind of elementary and this could be audio signals or even images they're signals okay. um, the idea is to decompose signals into elementary building blocks so for example if you think about the audio case so if we have an audio signal you know maybe people have seen in a computer yeah. when you have an audio signal the you have this wave right it's a very messy yeah. wave so the, the goal of harmonic analysis that is actually a pure math field is to understand how to decompose potentially very complicated signals 
in a superposition of very elementary ones that, that okay. we can fully understand. Okay. For example, we, we can always decompose all these kind of very complicated sound signals as a superposition of elementary waves. Okay. They're very easy to understand. Mm -hmm. So now you, you, you combine these different elementary waves, maybe they, you combine them in a way that modifies their amplitude, that shifts their phase a little bit, mm -hmm. and now by combining all these elementary building blocks, essentially you can, you can build realistic things, realistic signals. Okay. You can do the same for images. Okay. Like an image in a computer, so like, you know, in, in audio signals, we only have one dimension, which is time, and how sound evolves with time. In images, we have two dimensions, because we have pixels yeah, that pixels, are in a plane. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you can play the same game. You can decompose, and you can think about a 2D object. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's colors. You can think about colors as somehow, uh, you can think about an image as a surface somehow that, uh, you know, at each pixel, if, if a color, let's say, for simplicity, let's say that we are, have a grayscale image. Now, if a color is very close to white, mm -hmm. then I attach a very high value, high value to that pixel. Yeah. If a color is very close to black, I, I attach a very low value. Okay. All of a sudden, we have a surface because I can map pixels to height values, okay. and you can actually see this 3, 3D object. Okay. And you can decompose the surface that could be very complicated, like the, again, back to the MRI example, an image of a brain would be a very complicated surface if you, if you visualize like that. Mm. But you can always decompose that very complicated shape into a super, superposition of elementary building blocks. Okay. In this case, they're not just simple waves. People use things called wavelets. So they're like small waves that decay fast in space. And you could use wavelets to to represent and decompose images very, very efficiently. And that's, for example, the idea that is at the, ba at the base, not only of stuff like MRI, but any imaging modality. So for example, image compression algorithms like mm -hmm. JPEG. JPEG yeah. So how do we compress images? That's the main idea is simply writing, thinking about the image as a superposition of elementary building blocks mm -hmm. and discovering then that certain building blocks are more important than others and just throw away the, the, least, the least important one, least building blocks so that you can save a lot of space, that's mm -hmm. compression, and at the same time don't lose a lot of information and see kind of the image almost as it was. Okay. You always lose a little bit of information, but in that case, the goal of compression would be to lose the minimal amount of information, yeah. but achieve the maximum, maximum compression. compression. Okay. So, you know, things like that are hidden everywhere in technology, like where math really plays a key role. Yeah. In this case, harmonic analysis was, you know, is centuries old, and people were not thinking about JPEG or yeah. MRI when <laughs> developing yeah. these mathematical ideas. Yeah. But nonetheless, now they have an impact. Even right now, we're streaming on Zoom. Everything is being compressed. compressed Every okay. image we yeah. stream is being... There's a lot of math going <laughs> right, right now. That's okay. Right? So yeah. it's kind of being... In, if you go in the matrix and see how things are made, there's a lot of math yeah. with the, you know, uh, sorry, outside the matrix, right? So if you actually yeah. see how it's, technology works. It's, it's so funny. I mean, uh, as, as a kid, I was, uh, as I was saying, I was arithmophobic. But since I'm an engineer, for me, now <laughs> everything is maths. My work is maths, I write logics, I write code, but I think that's the difference of after I came to Canada, I studied here and I, I learned it, uh, I learned algorithms and everything in a different perspective. Yeah. Probably earlier I was scared and I was looking in a different perspective. So that's why that's, I think, as you mentioned, the education is also important and the weights also thought is also important. So that I yeah. felt. Um, you know, just just because I'm like literally, I'm working. My work, my area of interest, everything is now involving maths. 
it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. You're, you know, yeah. it's not and easy sometimes to get away from math. It keeps coming. It keeps coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the reason I asked you how it would uh, contribute to a regular user, just because, let's say, I'm I'm going to buy a salad, right? Just just to eat outside. It's you know not necessarily all the vegetables is by the same. Uh, person, right? So he's getting tomatoes from somewhere else, cucumber from somewhere else, and everything. So that way, what you are doing, like your contribution, could be used somewhere else for your your part of research. Could be used somewhere else that we probably are not even aware of. So let's say you you start working on AI and machine learning, and that algorithms or that particular technology is being used by someone else, yeah. uh, and we are not even aware that okay. This is by Simon. Simon, or probably you know, Simon's uh, research lab conducted this. So right. that's that's the reason I actually asked how is it helping uh, the regular user. And in that perspective, I also wanted to ask, what's your research right now yeah, on yeah. on AI and how do you like you you mentioned AI? So yeah, I, yeah, I, I yeah, thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I haven't opened the AI door yet. Okay, it's okay. going to be a big door, but yeah, right. we can open it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, because I was mentioning this medical imaging application because it's something that I've been working a lot on. The field I was I've been working on and still work on is called compressed sensing. Is and it is essentially the that's big part of my research, mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll it has to do with AI too, and I'll tell you in a moment. Mm -hmm. And so again, the main motivation there is to reconstruct signals from noisy measurements, okay. and a potential application could be medical imaging, but it's not the only one. You know. Could even be like radar, any mm. technology where you're trying to detect signals, or even cameras. Okay. You know, detect signals from physical measurements. Okay. There's many algorithms that allow you to do that very efficiently, and one of these, all the fields of math, of applied math that has studied this problem most intensively, is the compressed sensing area that I've been working on for uh, several years. Uh, but yeah, recently I've been involved uh, quite a lot in the study of uh, machine learning, okay. uh, which is a key component of AI, artificial intelligence, and my perspective is more on the, so really my goal is, I think it's twofold when I work in machine learning. On the one hand, I want to develop new machine learning algorithms or methods that are, uh, that are grounded on kind of rigorous mathematics. That's one of the objectives. So developing new stuff. The second one is to kind of see what's out there already, the algorithms that people are using, and try to use math to understand them at a deeper level. Okay. So really understand the inner workings of algorithms that are already out there. And again, when do they work properly? When they break? One of these, you know, the most popular, arguably the most popular class of algorithms that people have been using in the, in the last decade or so is so-called deep neural networks. Mm -hmm. These are, you know, that they enabled a huge class of, of breakthroughs in recent years, such as you know advancements in uh, self-driving cars, mm -hmm. ChatGPT. So the success of ChatGPT is, is due a lot to these deep neural network algorithms. Um, recommender systems, like when we get recommendations from YouTube or Netflix or stuff like that. There's many algorithms that learn from our data yeah. through using these neural networks to kind of optimize the recommendations, and there's many examples, or even speech recognition, you know, stuff like Siri or uh, yeah. uh, what's it called, the uh, Alexa, 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 yeah. So all that, all these, you know, 
all the advancements that we have been witnessing in the last couple of years in, in all these fields are largely uh, were largely enabled, mm-hmm. I would say, to to deep neural networks. And it's funny, just a, a little parenthesis. People have been, have been studying neural networks for way more time than we started to apply. And it's interesting. Again, there were people called uh, like AI winters, like there were AI seasons. Okay. AI winter is a season where people were not very Mm-hmm. kind of skeptical about AI, like people were maybe not investing in AI. Now everyone, everyone now is everyone investing. Wants, it's yeah, a really hot yeah. season for AI, yeah, right? Yeah. But there were winters <clears throat> where like deep neural networks were not considered like a practical algorithm. People, Some people actually here in Montreal, one of the examples is Professor Joshua Banjo at University of Montreal, yeah. the head of the largest yeah. lab about machine learning in yeah. the world, probably, Mila. Yeah. He, keeps, he kept studying uh, this topic, even though even when people didn't believe it was computationally useful, useful yeah. uh, but eventually it became exploded. You yeah, know, because yeah. essentially the, the the breakthrough was people understood how to really, so to speak, train these machine learning algorithms using GPUs in particular, mm-hmm. and that kind of from that point onwards, just people uh, started working on it. You know, very very very, very much. much. Yeah. yeah. So again, it's, that's, a, that's a story that is kind of interesting. Again, for research, you don't always see kind of where research is going. Absolutely. You could try to imagine the next five, ten years, but actually that's one of the most exciting mm-hmm. part of research. We don't really know where yeah. it's going. Yeah. It's I, also a bit scary sometimes. I, but. Yeah, I also wanted to ask about, uh, about the same thing, uh, chat GPT and how it's being used. Right. And the, the, I mean the negative effects because there's no boundary there's no limit set of what you could do with ai and it's it's like free to use right now i mean you could just do whatever you want and so my uh, question was like is there do you feel it should be you know there should be a limitation like for having ethical ai like yeah yeah, 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 yeah. because uh you know i've heard uh, the statement from the ex-google uh like the head who was actually initially involved in the AI research. And then he did mention that, you know, AIs probably could be in, you know, wrong hands and could be devastating in future. So again, we need to have probably a certain, uh, the rules and regulations or ethical practices that, you know, limit the use of AI. So I'm just wondering, like, do you feel the same that, okay, there should be a limitation at least from the state or from the, uh, you know, the government side that, okay, this particular practice should not be done, and this should be done. Right. No. Yeah. That. that yeah. These are very tough questions, and that we need to ask ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think we are in a stage right now where a lot of exciting developments come every month. Kind yeah. of. You know. There's yeah. many updates, and we're so excited that we were not thinking about how do we regulate all this. Right. I mean, there's a movement of people who started doing this very seriously. How do yeah. we actually design policies to? And I think also at Concordia, you know, we have the Applied AI Institute, where like ethical AI, responsible AI, all these all, all these themes are kind of one of in the key mission of the institute. So there's a movement of people who start kind of asking these questions more and more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, probably we're, I feel like we're a bit of a far west time mm-hmm. for AI, or okay. like we're just we're developing the technology. We're just Explore. not fully aware of. Yeah how dangerous it can be still, down the road. Still in the exploration. Yeah, we now uh, kind of politics uh, and policy development is, is a bit behind because, of course, it's slower, there's bureaucracy, there's, yeah. there's all that. 
So yeah, it's it's a tricky situation, but yeah, I do think that we definitely need to to make sense of what's happening and probably trying to be a bit more careful. And mm-hmm. uh, and that's where, by the way, math can help mm-hmm. a, a, to a big extent because how do you how do you understand what algorithms are doing? Yeah. Uh, well, you need math. Mm-hmm. So uh, the only rigorous way to kind of describe yeah. the behavior of an algorithm is through mathematics, you know. So, because computer science can help you develop algorithms, can help you test algorithms, can can help you apply AI to new stuff, and like software engineering, all these things are great. But what helps you to make sense of all this is kind of going back to the foundations and see. But my question there is, is not the initial foundation also maths? Yeah, 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 the initial, yeah, yeah. the AI is already, let's say, maths. So you want additional mathematics that could help? Yeah, because ma- math is the foundation. Yeah. But let's say when I say help, I, I'm thinking about, so for example, going back to the research I do, typically when I want to understand algorithms that are already out there, like neural networks, I have several papers that try to prove theorems about yeah. neural nets. So the tool f- for a mathematician to make sense of things is a theorem. Yeah. So try to formally prove that under certain conditions, something will always happen. It's bound to happen because there's a logical chain of implications Mm -hmm. that brings you from the cause to the effect. So really, I mean, math is just a big study of cause and effect things through a chain of logical connections, right? And algorithms are the most logical things there is, right? So like computer science, it's all built of a series of tiny logical things. Now, math is trying, of course, it's hard to understand algorithms if you focus on the at the hardware level, like the bits, like mm-hmm. what is what do the bits mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's really, there's no meaning there. Probably if it's, there's a big picture that you have to make sense of, and I think math theorems, you know, higher level concepts, higher level mathematical concepts, can just help you explain what is an algorithm capable to do, and mm-hmm. maybe what is it incapable of doing. One of my recent papers was about actually a limitation of neural networks in a certain problem, simple problem, just. You know, people talk about, um, you know, there's a lot of image processing doing with, you know, computer vision doing with mm. neural networks. For example, recognizing if, you know, if a picture contains, you know, horses or, or cats or whatever, right? Google does that all the time yeah, when you yeah. use Google images. Verification. Yeah, a simple problem we consider with a, with a collaborator of mine, Paul Tapper, and a, and a former Concordia student, Matthew Liu, um, was to study... Uh, the problem of understanding if two objects are identical or not. Okay. Like for humans, it's really easy. Like mm-hmm. I give you these two glasses, I show it to you, are they the same object? Yes. Mm-hmm. Now I give you, I show you a glass and, and maybe a bottle. You say, no, they're not the same yeah. object. For your brain, it's kind of straightforward to, yeah. to understand whether two things belong to the same category or not. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that for <laughs> neural networks, that by the way, there are algorithms inspired by how the human brain works. That's why mm-hmm. they're called neural networks. For neural networks, it's not that simple. So in some cases, actually, they're provably unable to learn this kind of identical pattern Patterns, between okay. objects. Mm-hmm. And so we studied this problem, again, theoretically, of proof the theorem where it's provably impossible. Under certain conditions, you will never be able, like no matter how big is your computer that you use for training, <laughs> how much data you give to the algorithm, yeah. you'll probably never be able to, to learn this kind of pattern. Mm-hmm. So... It was exciting for us because, you know, typically research is biased towards 
positive results, like what we can do, like yeah. what's the next step, which is fine. But I think also understanding what is it that we cannot do, it's also useful because yeah. then you can just avoid wasting resources yeah. on a direction that will never actually lead anywhere or just impossibility theorems like the one we developed, we developed can help you, can help practitioners, again, understanding you because now you know where, when things are not working as you were expecting. Therefore, you know, I can come up with ideas on when they could potentially work, you know, mm. by, by setting the algorithms a bit differently. Than, how, do you, than how do you decide what's the break-even point? Like, okay, you know, since the, you mentioned research is always optimistic, right? That, okay, this would work. Yeah, there's a huge and bias towards positive. Yeah, positive. Yeah. So how do you decide, okay, I've wasted or I've spent so much time here <laughs> and now I shouldn't go this path. So when is that point or oh, how, yeah, do you, how do you decide? Like, it, yeah. like, it's a huge thing also. So It really depends. I mean, this could also be in life, right? Yeah, it's a tricky that, question that's, in life. That's I'm, why I, I'm that's why I so asked, much yeah. time in this now. Yes. Like, yeah, it's, it's a hard question. But in research, I think experience is really key, you know, having been, you know, having uh, worked in research for now a couple of years, you know, I got my, my PhD in 2016, so how, how long it's been now? It's 2023, so nice. yeah, seven, like yeah, seven yeah. years of research yeah. after I got my PhD, but even before, you know, when I started, my PhD was 2012, so 11 years of research. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I noticed that the more you do research, the more you kind of develop this sixth sense of when things are going to work or not mm. kind of is not it's not a very it's it's almost unconscious you know like you get you see so many examples kind of mm. try and error you see examples of projects that led to very or maybe projects that seemed promising at the beginning then they didn't lead some anywhere anywhere yeah or projects that didn't seem that promising but they led to very fruitful research avenues uh, yeah, so again, at the beginning, could not could be a bit tricky to, to understand, understand. Okay. where things are going with research, but like experience helps, and but I don't think there's a you you get a, at a point where you you just know where things are going, even when we apply for grants, right? Yeah. So the research grant system works in the sense that you know I I try to describe where I want to be you, in five okay. years from yeah. now, for example, yeah. answered the biggest mm -hmm. source of. Um, of, of, of funding for, for research from the government is essentially asking you, okay, what kind of research do you plan to do in the next five years? Mm -hmm. And that's a very tough question because you have to exactly what you, you ask me. Like you have to try to predict, predict. what's going to work, what's not going to work. But to be honest, it's really hard. And then like almost never, I think no researcher ended up being where exactly, they declared exactly, five yeah, years declared, earlier yeah. to answer. And that's yeah. fine. And that's yeah. part of the game. Yeah. Of course, if you do, if you say, okay, I'm going to do research in machine learning and I want to prove maybe this theorem about algorithms or whatnot, and that if you do end up doing research on a totally different subject on history of <laughs> socialism, I don't know, like, yeah, that's yeah, not be, okay. But, like, yeah. you know, it's, it's so hard to predict. And also you want to be also a little bit opportunistic. Like, mm -hmm. when you start doing research, maybe one, two years in a project, you thought that the goal was getting in a certain direction, but you realize actually there's a slightly different direction Deviation, that is much like more, there's much more fruitful. fertile ground yeah, there. Fruitful, yeah. And it would be fool not to go there. You know, uh -huh. so you, I think you have to kind of keep your, your yeah. mindset always open and like 
be ready to adapt mm -hmm. to what you see. So okay. I think experience and also adapting. Be ready, but it's it's really a gut feeling when you say, okay, now this is not mm -hmm. working anymore. Of course, there's also evidence. You know, if if you have projects that led nowhere, like when it's maybe months of a project leading yeah. nowhere, uh, and it it becomes years of a project leading nowhere, well, then that's pretty big red flag, and you should mm -hmm. probably ask yourself how can, what can I change. But to my experience, it's rarely the case that even when when a project doesn't seem to lead nowhere. It's rarely the case that you will have to, that all the effort you put in that project will be wasted. Mm -hmm. Because probably you have learned something along the way that will adapt you to maybe find a, a slightly more focused or better research goal. So, again, it's a very adaptive, trial I, I and error, day-by-day yeah. day job. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to, I mean, generally I ask these questions, you know, um, and we have had these conversations before as well. So that's why I ask yeah. questions related to life. And I, I believe that's where... And that's how life is also, right? I mean, yeah, you're, yeah. you're trying to invest some time somewhere and you feel after a certain time that, okay, this doesn't work. Right. So now it's it's not that you've wasted your time, but that's an experience you gained and you could utilize right. it elsewhere or exactly. somewhere else. Yeah. Okay, exactly. perfect. Perfect. And so you, you talked about your lab too, about what your lab does, uh, your research uh, with uh, the two people you mentioned. Yeah, 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 right. So, yeah. yeah, I can talk a little bit more about how my research team looks like. So, okay, in math, we don't really have labs because, you know, our research is really, we just need <laughs> pen and paper, maybe a blackboard to collaborate or okay. a whiteboard, depending on what you like, and a laptop if okay. you're an applied math like me because, of course, you want to go. For me, the lab is really the computer. Okay. Kind of, I test if an idea works or not mm -hmm. by maybe, again, I'm proving a theorem about an algorithm. And then I need to check if that theorem actually describes what's going on in reality. So I want to test the algorithm, the actual implementation using of the tools. algorithm. Using yeah, using computer. Computers, okay. So, and, and typically in research in, uh, in mathematics or data science and machine learning involves a, a pretty good deal of, of programming. Mm -hmm. So anyways, my, yeah, my research team is right now composed by um, two PhD students and... Um, five master's students and typically I have undergrads depending on the time of years for example in the summer I was doing research projects with, uh, with two undergraduate students so yeah it's pretty diverse I, I used to have two postdocs as well now they, they found other jobs so they're not in the team anymore um, and so yeah that's that's another I guess cool part of the job that people come and go you know you, you meet a lot of really good students and and good Depending on the level, some of that, like a postdoc, is already a researcher. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's really exciting to collaborate with postdocs because really, they have, they kind of, they are the ones at the forefront of, of research. Because then, when you become a professor, you kind of, you still do research, but like you, you have so many other tasks on mm -hmm. your, on your on desk, desk yeah. that you know, like applying for grants, supervising people, <coughs> that you don't spend as much time as you were doing while you were a postdoc Post to just doing the research you know, firsthand. Mm. So it's so exciting to be, to collaborate with these people because they're in the battlefield, so to, say, yeah, <laughs> to speak, yeah, yeah. like spending a lot of time and, and energy to mm. actually figuring out things and like, yeah, that, that's very exciting. And, and also, you know, all the other stages of, 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 of research have they, their own pros and cons. Mm. Uh, also, you know, PhD and master's students, it's nice because typically you, 
uh, you, you, you see how they are becoming a researcher, especially in the, the case of a PhD student. Mm -hmm. You can see how much they grow over the years and like develop this mindset of yeah. like, critical thinking skills, like developing nice. very valuable research skills. And even with, with undergrads could be super fun because typically these <laughs> this summer internships are their very first experience with yeah. research. Uh -huh. And uh, so the challenging part is that they don't have a lot of background, so they will need to more to, adapt. Yeah, to do more reading, and, maybe yeah. to, to 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 catch up with certain yeah. uh, parts of the literature. But also, it's so it's fun because they they don't know what to expect. They're so kind of playful with research. Yeah. There's no expectation. Yeah. Also, you know, there's less pressure to publish. For yeah. example, when you start being a PhD, then you know you need to publish, publish to okay. to then get a postdoc and, and also to get a PhD. So there starts to be the pressure that sometimes can create a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. But with undergrads, it's, it's, there's no that pressure. You just do research for the fun of it. It can be very exploratory. Nice. So yeah, every time was super positive experience for me to, to just see, introduce these very young <laughs> folks to, to research for the first time. Yeah. And sometimes they, they have really out-of-the-box ideas the bo yeah. because it's like, their first time. Yeah. So it's so refreshing just yeah. to see, oh, wow, I, I didn't think about that problem that way. A new perspective. Because I'm so, you know, my experience sure helps me to be more efficient. Yeah. But also sometimes kind of makes makes me forget how, you know, the yeah. freshness of things, like yes. these new viewpoints. Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, that's more or less how things are in my, mm -hmm. in my research team. Um, okay. And... Uh, so last time we discussed about, uh, you know, I, I remember this conversation. I wanted to ask you, uh, last time we had this conversation about how maths or if I have to say algorithms is changing the way uh, you're actually performing. Uh, like, for example, <laughs> Tinder, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So how Tinder <laughs> is changing your biological connections. Right, right. So, yeah, because there is this thing, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan uh, of this philosopher called, actually, physicist and philosopher Nick Bostrom mm -hmm. uh, is the director of the Institute for the Future of Humanity in Oxford. Okay. Uh, pretty impressive thinker. He wrote this book called Superintelligence okay. that talks about potential scenarios with AI, what could go wrong. That's a book that I recommend. Mm -hmm. Pretty happy to read. Not, not the typical bad time story. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> like a bit happy, but like yeah. it's essentially tries to predict different scenarios of mm -hmm. things. How could things go wrong or, or go perfectly fine with AI yeah. in the decades or centuries to come. And so there is this thing that you know, there's a singularity eventually that will come where AI might take over the world, right? Mm. This kind of, we, we have this, yeah, the, the, in the, in we the imagine back of, back of your mind, there could be this future that, where yes. AI becomes unmanageable. But yeah. actually, if, if you think about it, AI is already influencing, that's yes. what we're talking about, yes. our, our species pretty impressively, even with you know, Tinder. Yeah. You know, we, the way of thinking about Tinder is like, it's AI, so the matching algorithm there is suggesting, again, people for your partners for you, and that if you end up maybe establishing a relationship with the partner, uh, having kids with their partner, you will, you know, that will imply modifying the human genes, yeah, genes. right? Yes. And so, in a way, the <laughs> algorithm is already modifying, yeah, modifying. our yeah. genes. Mm. So, like, there's so many ways that AI is already having an impact yeah. on us. Yeah. And also, if you think about the internet, and, and again, all the suggestions. Again, we think about Google, you know, the, the, all the search engines, they always have uh, a, an AI component. For example, this image classification component that tells you, oh, this is a horse, this is a cat. Yeah. And if you want to, oh, this is a, I want to look for a, 
a meme of a cat reading a book. You yeah. can find it because yeah. AI is able to just search it and touch. look it up for you and yeah, yeah and attach it. Extract yeah. the meaning of this sentence and yeah. look an image for an image that. So there's a lot of ways that AI is already modifying, modifying. us. Yeah, I um, mean, not even not even genes thing. I mean, having after you have kids, but even meeting someone. Right. Uh, suppose yeah, yeah. if there was not dating or Tinder, you probably would have met someone else at that particular time right. or someone else, <laughs> you know, uh, at a different place. So or it's, even elections, right? So actually, yeah. that, that could be very troubling. Like these algorithms, uh -huh. uh, how, you know, what kind of posts you see in a social network mm. that will influence your opinion about mm. things. Okay. And yeah. like how these algorithms recommend posts yes. that down the road creates I mean, yeah, it, it influences your mindset. of and, people. Yes. And that can influence elections. That's a big business of like, you know, creating bots that goes go on Twitter or now X and try to influence things. Yeah. That was kind of a pretty you know, a pretty concerning uh, aspect of, of, of the current landscape where algorithms just control our lives in ways that we don't fully mm -hmm. understand. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's a super important. And that's also part of the data. So we were talking about potential dangers, right? How to keep things under control. And yeah, that's part of the potential danger of, of our algorithms in this case. And um, yeah, but in this case, for example, there's already policies, I believe, mm -hmm. trying to limit the ways you could influence the type of uh, outputs that these algorithms are making. And, uh, and you also mentioned uh, even maths could help with this. Right. Like how to, how do I say, how to manage this and uh, how to direct you better decisions yeah so I think and, yeah I can maybe explain this a bit more how, why I, I believe that math can help actually can deeply help mm -hmm. <clears throat> because the way I would say most of the time machine learning is used is as kind of a black box you know that there's an algorithm that is very powerful yeah. you have an application in mind yeah. maybe you need to again build your own self-driving car okay maybe you don't want to have a self-driving car you want to have uh, build a self-driving drone whatever mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. Um, and you want to develop that technology, you know that there are algorithms that can classify, computer vision algorithms that can classify images pretty well. You just need to integrate that to your particular application that you have in mind. But you don't really ever wonder about, okay, what's really, or at least most of the people from what I'm seeing have very kind of practice oriented. Let's just apply this. I mean, mm -hmm. it, can be, it can be done, let's do it. Yeah. Without kind of, Having a global posing, perspective, of, yeah, yeah, posing for me and say, okay, what's actually what? What? Why is this algorithm working? Yeah. Is it really supposed to work every time? Is it really stable? So two two key mm -hmm. concepts in. So my background is in this field called numerical analysis, and two key concepts in numerical analysis are, for example, stability and accuracy of an algorithm. So accuracy means how accurate is the response going to be. And for which inputs? Typically, an algorithm has certain inputs, will give you an output. How accurate will be the output for a certain class of inputs? Mm -hmm. You can formalize this question mathematically, mm -hmm. and, and that can help you, again, understand something that is very crucial about the algorithm. On stability, like, there was a pretty big deal in machine learning, and in deep learning in particular, um, that sometimes, for example, in image classification, you can uh, craft specific perturbation of mm -hmm. some of the pixels of the image mm -hmm. 
so that the image will stay almost identical, okay. but it will be classified as something different. Totally, totally different. different. Like yeah. there are examples in the papers, like you know, a panda being classified as a monkey, stuff like that. Yeah. You just move a few pixels. Okay. That's still, you know, for a human, that's still a panda, panda. But now the algorithm all of a sudden gives you a meaningless output. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That that highlighted the so these are called adversarial attacks or adversarial instabilities to machine learning algorithms. Just is it just a test? If it's working well, it, it, it could be it could be used to test, but that could be a, a big deal because now imagine this is a self-driving car, okay. and now part of the self-driving car computer vision engine is to understand when there is a stop sign to stop. Seems like a pretty. If the yeah. input is an image of a stop sign, you want the output to be break. Yeah. But now all of a sudden, if the computer vision algorithm is not fully stable, there could be way to slightly perturb the stop sign. And interestingly, people have performed. Mm experiments you can implement this in real life for example you can stick some pieces of tape in the stop sign in a certain way mm -hmm. that will fool the machine learning algorithm to think that maybe the stop sign is a go-ahead sign, go sign and that's yeah. that's pretty dangerous right so, so uh -huh. this you know this can happen in real life it's not just to, for, of course you could use for testing to craft particularly nasty perturbations mm -hmm. that could test how robust is the algorithm but at the end of the day you need some math that tells you, oh, this algorithm will always be stable under certain conditions, mm -hmm. and only apply it when those conditions, conditions are, met. are met. The thing is that we are applying many of these algorithms in scenarios where we don't know if they're going to be stable or not, accurate or not. So we cannot cross our fingers, do a lot of testing with data, and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm oversimplifying here. Of course, there's a lot of work and engineering that goes to that. I'm not. I don't want to diminish the practical mm -hmm. testing side, but um, I see a bit of, you know, we take this thing very lightly sometimes. We just deploy algorithms mm -hmm. that are not fully understood from a theoretical perspective. Mm -hmm. And this could lead to unpredictable outcomes mm -hmm. that could be potentially very unpleasant. Mm -hmm. So that's what concerns me the most. And that's why I see a lot of value in studying these algorithms with the tools of mathematics, mm -hmm. of theory, because it's really trying to understand them yeah. carefully. And then sometimes we, you know, there might be bad news. Like, okay, maybe we cannot use this algorithm because as of now we don't understand it well enough to be deployed mm -hmm. on such a large scale. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, it's not the direction we're currently going as a okay. society. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, yeah, the, that's, the, that's the question always comes up in mind. Like, you know, where are we heading with this particular technologies? And yeah. it could... Potentially lead to, you know, uh, in a negative hands or if I have to say negative uh, usage. Like, right, that's for yeah. sure another risk as well. Yeah, yeah. there's a risk. Okay. And uh, before you, uh, I mean, before I move on to the next question, do you have something else to add upon AI and machine learning before I wanted to actually also, since you're here, take this opportunity to ask about, uh, you know, since you're a professor also, what's the process so right yeah so i i wanted to ask that question before if in case you wanted to add something on the ai machine learning part. I see. um no i think for now let me let me think no we, we touched upon yeah like take home message i think we need more math in ai because we need to make more sense mm. of ai of course keeping applying it to more and more in more and more creative ways yeah it's exciting it's 
it, it, it makes you feel like it makes we feel it makes us feel like we're moving forward fast towards an exciting future, but also a bit dangerous. So uncontrolled, I think, uncontrolled. Yeah, yeah. So that that's my two cents on the topic as of today. Perfect. Um, thanks, yeah. thanks for sharing that perspective and you know walking us through the entire journey of what you do and what AI is potentially of doing and right. how you know maths could help maths and statistics if I have to say numbers, numerology, and numericals. Not numerology. Yeah, numerology is not, a not <laughs> numerology, but I'm is it not mathematical? Yeah, also not but, a discipline, but, but, but numericals. Yeah. Numericals yeah, numerical help. analysis. Yeah, it's um, statistical numerical. Analysis. Yeah. Also, I would say the main fields that. Uh, are related to mathematics and machine learning are, yeah, numerical analysis, a field called scientific computing, statistical learning is kind of one of the foundational aspects. There, there will be, yeah, there will be more to unpack here. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, these are, this AI is such a complex technology that you, you need a lot of very complicated math concepts to mm -hmm. make it work. There's elements from probability, also elements from linear algebra, elements from analysis of many people will be familiar with calculus. Mm -hmm. Of course, it would be more advanced type of calculus, like multivariate calculus concepts. All these things are necessary to build the ideas that these algorithms use. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty interdisciplinary field, mm -hmm. uh, pretty exciting as well. I mean, that's what attracts me to it as well, because you don't get bored in this field. I kind of, uh, there's so many things that come into play as a mathematician that yeah. you feel like you have so many toys to play with because mm -hmm. there's so many concepts that you need to combine in order to, to understand things that also, just from the purely mathematical perspective, it's really exciting. And people are seeing more and more connections as we speak okay. between mathematics and AI. So, And uh, since you talked about that, does a person who's uh, not much into maths or not good at maths, let's say, but still work on algebraic uh, calculus and a numerical analysis, statistical analysis right. would be well. I think a certain, I think certain foundations to at least understand mm -hmm. how this algorithm works. There are now nowadays like a variety of online resources and introductory courses that are really kind of gentle yeah. introductions uh -huh. to to the topics. For example, for people who maybe have a high school level training in math and want to understand what machine learning is. Mm -hmm. There's a book that I really enjoyed, like build stuff from scratch, and it's called Mathematics for Machine Learning. It can to introduce you very gently to all the topics that you need to know in order to just understand what does it mean to train an algorithm from data, what is a neural network, you know, just to make sense, to, to give meaning to all these words that I'm saying. You, you actually have to understand, understand some concepts from linear algebra, multivariate calculus, uh, probability, statistics mm -hmm. so that kind of book this mathematics for machine learning book is, is nice because it assumes almost zero knowledge besides very basic algebra stuff that you do in high school and builds up up to okay. what's done in state-of-the-art yeah, okay. algorithms so but yeah a little bit of effort at least, yeah, in, at the end. into learning the basics I think it's necessary uh -huh. and that's why math is so unpopular because it's again it's the, it requires uh, you to do your homework like and it's yeah it requires you a little bit of discipline, and it, it's tough. You know? I mean, uh, like, I, I, I'll not speak for others, but I'll speak for myself. Uh, for me, it's like the theorems, and like having those uh, symbols, usage of symbols, and uh, sometimes it's, um, how do I say, scary. 
that okay yeah, how yeah, do yeah. i do it? like okay i don't remember what is this like you know different signs yeah different, but i think like, it, it would be the same type of fear that i would see if i try to read japanese it would mm. be very scared i have no idea but like if i study japanese seriously for three, four, five years ago, travel in Japan for a couple then, of months, maybe it'll not be as scary. You know, sense. actually try to enjoy reading haikus, you know, uh, and makes Japanese sense. poetry. So that's the thing, same thing with math, to appreciate the depth and the beauty of certain mathematical constructions, formulas, theorems. You need first to build up just the basic vocabulary, the basic grammar to just, yeah. again, if you want to read yeah, yeah, yeah. a great author, you need to yeah. first... Yeah, know, the, know the language, language right so well i appreciate what you're doing and <laughs> you yeah, know uh, people like <laughs> as if if you're not that comfortable in maths but i appreciate what you're doing and uh, what you're contributing to society and uh, going to the next question as i mentioned like a lot of people uh after postdocs and they want to get into universities i mean i'm asking this because uh, a few right. of my friends are also in that process so how how do you think i mean or if you could explain about the process, uh, right. not not again. We are not talking numbers. I don't want you to talk yeah, about yeah. any or disclose any rules and regulations that you're not obliged to or you know yeah, sure. or, yeah to disclose. But within the limitations of as an assistant professor, how do you think uh, if someone is applying, how how's the process? Right. So okay. First of all, okay. For people who are not super familiar, maybe with the academic uh -huh. path, right? So yes. yeah, you do, you get your PhD, and then um, in theory, you could already apply for professor positions, season mm -hmm. professor positions. So um, you just need a PhD typically in the job description, uh, but it's very rare because the the, the job market is so competitive yeah. that it's almost I, I've never seen it happen in the last few years in the departments I'm aware of that people start an assistant professorship right after the PhD. So typically you are a certain number of years as a so-called postdoc, mm -hmm. which means you, you just are employed as a, as a research scientist and you work, you maybe travel a little bit yeah. and you work with different professors. And um, this could last between when you're very lucky, maybe one, two years and could last, you know, you could even have different postdocs up to maybe five, six, seven years of postdocs. Wow. It really depends. There's not a formula. It's not like you get a postdoc yeah. degree. It's just yeah. a phase where you build up your CV, yeah. publish more papers, yeah. and essentially build a portfolio that allows you to uh, to then be competitive in the in the academic job market mm -hmm. and get an assistant professor position. So, first thing to notice is that that phase is extremely challenging. You know, I I, I speak for direct experience. Yes, being a postdoc is hard, and I've seen you know when I was I've been a postdoc at Simon Fraser University in Canada. And um, yeah, it was not easy because you have so much uncertainty that in terms of job position, typically your contract is one or two years mm. and, uh, and you don't know what's going to be of your life after, you know, the next year in two yes. years time. That can create a lot of stress. So it's hard to be in that phase. And um, again, the job market is pretty tough, but typically um, what, you know, how the process works is the following. When you, when, depending on your field, and this could vary a lot based on, you know, if you're in science, humanities, math, physics, whatever. Mm -hmm. Typically, if you, you should talk about this with your supervisor, but if, if you're in a stage where you think your, your portfolio is competitive enough mm -hmm. to now go be able to, yeah, to go into the market and get, try to get a CISA professor position, um, 
then you typically you you need to submit in math you need to submit a research statement so that means a couple of pages about where do you see your research going in the in the next five years or so that that's need to give people who are hiring you an idea of you know if if your research field is what they're looking for mm -hmm. and what the department is looking to yeah. you know grow, grow. In. yeah uh, typically there is a research statement where you talk about your teaching experiences and also that's another thing to notice as a postdoc you typically have also the opportunity to to teach some classes it's actually a good idea to also to look for these opportunities yeah. because then you will have to build your teaching portfolio as well mm -hmm. because assistant professor positions are you know our responsibilities are are, are three main areas research teaching and service so it's mm -hmm. good to show that you have three of all of them. Lots of them, of yeah. course, the most important area as a postdoc to develop is research. You mm -hmm. want to show that your research is really cutting edge and like mm -hmm. you, sh you have pretty strong results. You're able to publish in good journals. Yeah. But it's good to have some experience with teaching. Let's say when you apply for the first time the job market, maybe at least having at least one or two courses under your belt so mm -hmm. that you can show, oh, I taught to, to yeah, classes, I have teaching us. evaluations, yeah. I could do the teacher as well because that will be part of the job. Service is more rare, you know, to have experience in service before getting a professor and position. What sort of service do you mean? Yeah, typically service would be either when you become a professor, it can be internal service, so being in committees for the department. Okay. For example, it could be a hiring committee or oh, okay. uh, any sort of committee, or like faculty curriculum committee, or it could be for the university. So there's many committees in the university, like even the university senate, you know, mm -hmm. many things. So that's what service is. Okay. And could also be external, though, with the scientific community. And that mm -hmm. in that case means, like, typically organizing events mm -hmm. or initiatives. For example, you could organize uh, a research workshop or uh, a mini symposium mm. for a conference. Okay. So as a postdoc, it's also a good idea to being, get involved. Being active. Being yeah. active in, like... Being active with the scientific community scientific. so that, first of all, it's good for networking. Yes. You know more people. And getting your name out there in that phase is crucial. And, and also you show that you, you were proactive. proactive. You kind of helped in the organization of events and stuff like that. So what could help too is, you know, participating in stuff like student postdoc associations, mm. showing that, you know, getting an executive role in those, showing mm. that you are you yeah, willing, leadership. To, you're, yeah, I mean, you're willing to you know, do something that something. goes beyond research and teaching research. because that will be yes. required later, the job. Yes. So that's kind of the, <laughs> the situation. And then, yeah, how does it work? Yeah, you, 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 you send the research statement, the teaching statement. Um, typically depends on the CV, of course. And then, yeah, so the, the success ratio is really low. Like, for example, yeah, yeah, I, I cannot, I don't know if I can, but like, I don't want to disclose exact numbers, but mm. let's say for one assistant professor position, there will be typically hundreds, potentially hundreds of applicants. So the success ratio is it's pretty brutal. And essentially... So the extra skill that you need to develop there is to really understand how do you stand out from this crowd of mm. CVs, from this crowd of research statements, teaching statements. And so there's also a certain amount of work. And, and junior researchers don't like to do that, but it's necessary. So to speak, you have to learn to sell what you do. Kind of becomes a little bit of a salesman in yeah. terms of pitching what you do. Like make other people excited. Yeah. about what, what you, your, research. What your research because typically when you're a postdoc you're so immersed in mm -hmm. what you do that you just see and it's great you see the, the beauty of the, your research you want to keep doing that you forget about okay, yeah, telling kind of, to others kind of the, yeah. why that is relevant yeah. Yeah. why that is important mm -hmm. 
and that actually plays a key role in the in the selection phase. Like you have to convince people in the hiring committee that yeah. what you do is relevant, what you do is important, what you do is has the potential to lead to a lot of exciting research achievements in the next years if you are the person being hired. So I would say that's a pretty crucial and tough thing that in academia we struggle with at the postdoc phase. And I was again I talk by first experience too because um, again, we, we're not trained for this. We're trained to do research. We're trained to, as students, as we start teaching, we, we learn by experience how to teach yeah. at the university. Luckily, there's more and more initiatives at the university that teach you how to highlight your work. Mm -hmm. So to see, be a salesman yeah, for yourself, yes. like brand your, your yeah. CV in a better way. There and this is great because it's so yeah. crucial yeah. to then really, you know, succeeding. Mm -hmm. So, for example, yeah, at Concordia, yeah, the the graduate the graduate student uh, the the grad pro skills. There's uh, yeah. the whole uh, the whole there, office there's called lot grad of help pro around. skills. There's a lot of help around. Yeah, like so, resume building workshops, uh, character building workshops, and everything. Like this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So many people, students, and and postdoc, they forget mm -hmm. about taking advantage of all the opportunities that the university gives you while you're here mm -hmm. for free. Yeah. Again, if you're a grad student here, you have access to so many so amazing many. workshops. You should take. I will say all of them, like many of them, because they will be, they will develop your soft skills yeah. that might seem like a waste of time while you're doing research. But like, because you think, oh, I need to do more research. I don't want to just do, do a workshop, waste two hours of my time. Yeah. But it will be a much better investment on the long run because mm -hmm. these soft skills, like working on your CV and like even just better, you know, enhancing your writing, your public speaking, stuff like that yeah. will matter a lot. Uh, when you're then look for jobs, it's part in particularly academic jobs. Mm. So yeah, the, the, the sorry because you talked you asked me about the process and I, I, I did a big detour. But like the process at the end of the day is you send your package. Yeah. Then there's the first selection. Typically it depends on the department, but typically there's maybe shortlisted interviews, uh, interview with let's say around ten candidates. And typically only a few of them are invited on campus for a full day interview. So it, okay. these are really in-depth interviews where we invite could be three, four people yeah. on campus to spend a day with us, with the yeah. whole department. Right. Because to hire an assistant professor, it's, it's a huge investment for, yeah. for the university over the years. And so you want to make sure that it's, you're investing in the, in the right person. It's like a marriage. You get to know. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit you, of... You get to know and then... There's a little bit of that. And, yeah. And at that point, it's interesting because when you select, let's say, your top five that or top four that you invite on campus, they're typically very good, you know, because there's hundreds of people. You selected the top four out of, yeah. of hundreds. Yeah. And they're typically all excellent. So at that stage, really, these soft skills yeah. will be what, what make you stand out okay. at the interview stage because then you also want to show... You're a good colleague. You're nice. a person who's who's good to you know. It's fun to work with. He's you. also a team player. He's also yeah, of course, yeah. Of course, if you don't have yeah the, the so, papers, you yeah. cannot get to the stage. But like, yes. it's so competitive that you have to also work on your non-research related yeah, skills non to yeah. succeed. So it's it's just not about okay. I I'm perfect in academics. I'm a you know A grader, A plus grader, and everything. But I not able to communicate. I'm not able to put it these out. days. This, I'm not. Yeah, uh, it's more yeah. and more important because so there's so many important. people in the job market that there's, there's so many Good, excellent, excellent people, not just yeah. so many excellent candidates that what puts you, yeah, you know, stand out top. from the crowd is also this these other different skills, kind of 360 degrees yeah. 
Excuse yeah, it's, it's so good that you, you talked about it because uh, a lot of people, I know they only focus on this. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll also talk on my perspective while I was a master's student and we had so much of uh, academic, if I have to say, baggage that, oh, you have to do projects, you have to do this, right. you have to. So you at the end, uh, since you're also an international student, you also have these problems of, oh, going to work finishing the projects on time, preparing for the assignments and multiple subjects, multiple assignments. So you don't, at the end, uh, you know, try to go in these uh, different skill sets or probably invest in this skill set. But I think for researchers, uh, since they do not have, uh, like since they get grants and everything, probably that uh, one part is like, how do I say, it's uh, better for them because they don't have to go again for part times and everything. But what I'm saying is, yeah, I mean, that's a good perspective you showed for people who are actually trying to build their yeah. uh, profile as well, not just to focus on education or academics, but also to focus on other things like team building, other skills like, uh, you know, networking, net networking yeah, yeah. Uh, soft spoken skills, like, you know, how you can actually, uh, you know, present yourself and yes, yes, sell yourself, upsell yourself. Yeah, one of the things, as a postdoc, I decided <coughs> to get involved with the postdoc, postdoc association at SFU. Mm -hmm. And I, at first I was one of the, in the executive, then I actually became the president for one year. And on one hand, part of me was saying, oh, but this is too much of an investment of time. But I'm so happy I did that because like, that in, being involved at such a, such a high stage, you know, such a high energy with, with, with the postdoc community. There was time spent on it, but like I met so many people, exchanged so many, so many views with other postdocs, with actually faculty members. So mm -hmm. when you're president of, of the association, you talk yeah, with faculty members, faculties. with administrators. I, it was also an, an opportunity for me to see the university a little bit from the, from the inside, behind the curtains, how it works before becoming professor. And also, yeah, it helped me developing, I think, some of the soft skills. And it gave me something to show in my CV as well. Like, oh, mm -hmm. I was the president yeah. of this association. We organized events. We, we did other activities that go beyond uh, research and teaching. So, again, do not underestimate the importance, importance of this or what, what surrounds mm. the academic experience. I think that's a, that's a good perspective for who is listening. I mean, if you're in that phase, uh, if you're about to finish or you're a postdoc, who's wanting to build your profile, probably these things would help you, right? Yeah. as Simon mentioned. So thanks again, Simon. And before I end this uh, session for today, uh, for this, uh, I generally ask people, uh, you know, on, on the podcast, what is one thing that they would want to change generally in their life and, uh, you know, what's happening uh, in their, like one particular thing that's of highest priority that, probably you never got a chance to, or you were planning to change. So for you, I would ask that in two perspectives. One is what you want to change in your lifestyle, and one thing in the research. Right, so, that's good, yeah. Yeah, uh, so how, how do you think what should be changed in research, or one thing that you at least want to see? Right, so should I start with either of those, whatever? And, yeah. yeah, whatever you feel um, comfortable. Okay, in life I would say a challenge, let me start with life. A challenge for professors is typically the amount, the workload, the mm -hmm. amount of work we have to do. So let's say, again, we do research, teaching, surveys, and all yeah. that. So I would really like to, and I, I, I'm working on this a lot, but like trying to better, you know, become better at my time management skills. 
especially nice. understanding when it's time to unplug, you know, yeah. every day, you know, okay, that's yeah. the, time, the amount of time you had to devote to work, it's over. Yeah. I get over it, tomorrow you're going to start again. It's really hard sometimes in, in our job because things never end. There's yes, always okay. tasks, there's always projects, there's always meetings, there's always ideas, there's always emails. Mm. So it, it requires a lot of kind of discipline to just say, okay, now I'm done, I'm yeah. plugged for today, yeah. tomorrow for the weekend. Yeah. So yeah, on my personal <laughs> life, I, I'm already working on this, but I'd like to, to become Work-life work balance. Yeah. I think a lot of people are actually in that phase of understanding uh, you know, how to manage work versus life and then, yes. you know, how to disconnect. As as I always said, uh, disconnect to connect. <laughs> yeah, disconnect to connect because disconnecting, you're disconnecting from the outside world to connect within yourself, with your family, with your friends and relatives. Yes. Thanks again for sharing that perspective yeah. And, um, yeah, and the second thing. In in research, so so the question is like, what would I like to change in research? Like, yeah, or at least, at least you see. Yeah, no, I see, like, uh, we've been talking a lot about AI and machine learning. I definitely see that that will still play a crucial role in my in my future research. Um, to be honest, I, I see I see continuity there. Mm-hmm. I see, like, this direction of mathematics and machine learning is quite relevant for society. I feel it quite meaningful for me, and I would like to keep going that going. direction. I'm not exactly sure what, what the new ideas... I have several research projects and ideas that are, uh, you know, being developed. I'm not sure where I will be exactly in five years from now in terms of exact research topics. Yeah. Uh, who knows what the AI landscape will look like in yeah. five years from yes. now. But this research area uh, seems pretty exciting and also relevant for me to, to just, I see continuity in that. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for answering that. And before I end, I just want to know from... Uh, Anna, if in case we have any online questions, or if not, I'll just, you know, since we have Simon here already. Uh, no, no, all right, thank you. Cool. So thanks again, Simon, for your time and for showing us the different perspective of mathematics, numerical, statistics, and so many, so much, much more, and also helping people who are actually planning to build up their resume and profile. So thanks for your time, Simon. And You're welcome. It was a, it was pleasure. a pleasure. It yeah. was a pleasure to have you All on right. this stage. Thank Good. you. Great. Thank you. <laughs>